0: Good morning. My name is Art Cash, a discipleship pastor here, and I'm excited to be with you in Acts 16 16 today. We're going to be in verses 16 through 40. So while you're turning there, I've got a, I've got a quote for you and a picture. H. Jackson Brown once said that in the confrontation between the stream and the rock, the stream always wins, not through strength, but by perseverance. So, you know, I could Google a picture of the Grand Canyon and put that up there, but I've never been there. So instead, I'm showing you a picture of the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, all right, place that I've been recently. Kind of like if Art goes on vacation, he's going to share pictures of that in the sermon, okay? <laughs> but he, this place is beautiful, okay? You got to think, here's the Yellowstone River, probably started inconsequentially, small, a trickle. All that river needed was, was time, to cut this beautiful canyon into the rock. This water's flow is relentless. It's wearing down of the rock, inevitable. We've seen this theme throughout the book of Acts, and it's made explicit in our passage today. We have a person more powerful and more relentless than, than any water cutting through a rock. We have a message that's more beautiful than any canyon. The gospel of Jesus Christ is guaranteed to never stop advancing, to always persevere. And that's our main point this morning. We'll see this in our passage, that no matter the obstacle, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ moves forward, no matter what. It's relentless. So we'll see the progression in our, in our passage this morning, that, that that message of salvation, it moves forward through supernatural Confrontation. The message moves forward through dramatic conversion, and it moves forward through timely courage. We'll see all three this morning. So hopefully you're in Acts 16, starting verses 16 through 40. You can read along with me. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "'These men are servants of the Most High God,' "'who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. "'And this she kept doing for many days. "'Paul, having become greatly annoyed, "'turned and said to the spirit, "'I command you in the name of Jesus Christ "'to come out of her. "'And it came out that very hour. "'But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, "'they seized Paul and Silas "'and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. "'And when they had brought them to the magistrates, "'they said, "'These men are Jews.'" And they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. May God bless the reading of his word and this account. Let's, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to, to see what you would have us to see in this passage. That, that you will, will confront and, and overpower any darkness, any evil, anything that, that opposes you. You will convert uh, enemies to, to seat them at your table. Father, you will give us courage in, in the times that we need it by your Spirit to stand up for your church and your gospel. Father, help us to see Jesus in, in this passage. In his name, amen. So you, you'll recall here, we're in Acts 16. We're in the early stages of this, this second missionary journey. We've got Paul and Silas and, and Timothy and Luke. They're in Philippi. That's at the top of, of the map there. There's a Roman colony in Macedonia. And Luke wants us to see what's going on in in this little church in, in Philippi. He wants us to see who Jesus is uniting together across social boundaries, gender, economic. He wants us to see who and he wants us to see how Jesus is doing this. You'll remember Lydia's conversion from last week. So we know from verse 14 that she's wealthy, she's religious. We could call her conversion ordinary. Meaning that it happened by Paul and Silas just sitting down and having a conversation with some ladies about Jesus. It's just an ordinary thing to do. We know from from verse 13 that what may seem ordinary or common, just having this conversation, is extraordinary. It's still an act of Jesus to, to open her heart and have Lydia pay attention to what's happening. Verse 14. So Luke's wanting us to carry this along. He's wanting us to have Lydia in mind, who she is, what she's about, her conversion, as he shares with us the the following accounts, this demon-possessed slave girl and a a brutish, battle-hardened jailer. None of these people in Philippi have a single thing in common other than proximity, okay? But this is the unlikely way that Jesus builds his church, this methodical, relentless way that the message of salvation moves forward. So first, it moves forward through this supernatural confrontation. Again, look at, look at 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "'These men are servants of the Most High God "'who proclaim to you the way of salvation. "'And this she kept doing for many days.'" Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So, so it says group, they're, they're headed to the place of prayer, back down to, to where Lydia and her companions were. They're met by a demon-possessed girl. So the passage tells us she's both a slave and she's being exploited by her owners who are using her affliction to make money for themselves. This demon who possessed her recognized Paul and his companions, caused her to follow them around, shouting and crying out, somewhat surprisingly, the truth. Okay, these men are, in fact, servants of the Most High God. They are proclaiming the way of salvation. This confrontation should remind us of something. It should remind us of Jesus in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark. You remember the story where he sends the demons, legion, for they were many, into the pigs. They jump off the cliff. They drown. But before that happened, legion recognized Jesus. And he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? We're meant to see the similarities. But for me, what jumps out at me the most about this passage is, is Paul's understandable reaction to being followed around by someone incessantly shouting. Now, I don't know how long that she followed them around crying out, but Luke says she kept doing it for many days. So my first thought about this passage was it was kind of nice to see Paul get annoyed. Okay, A, a sanctified annoyance, if you will. I mean, there's an experience that, that any of us can identify with. It's the feeling of being annoyed from hearing people chew, Okay, to, to, to being interrupted when you're just, you're just taking a pause. You're just taking a breath to continue your thought and somebody just jumps in there. Okay, to, to people putting their, their calls on speaker in, in public. Lights left on in empty rooms, doors left open when the air conditioner's going. Ah, feels good to kind of just get that off my chest a little bit. Yeah. We, we can find ourselves endlessly annoyed. There's my list, Okay we've got to be careful though, right? You knew this was coming. <laughs> Just like the temptation to, to misuse Jesus flipping tables in the temple to justify our own sinful anger, we, we can't let Paul's annoyance here justify our sinful impatience towards others. Right? We have to ask the Holy Spirit to, to examine us here do, do we get more annoyed with actions that, that that cross our personal kingdoms, or God's kingdom? Things that that are an affront to our sensibilities. I mean, it just makes sense to to not chew loudly. Okay, <laughs> the things that, that personally affront or offend us, or are we annoyed by what would would go against God's holiness? I mean, if we're, we're honest, annoyance is kind of a gateway drug. So Some of us need to repent, where annoyance has become a default, our pattern. Our annoyance comes out as impatience with God and irritability towards others because things aren't our version of perfect. That's sin. <laughs> May the Lord help us by His Spirit to repent and be patient. We can be patient with others because He's patient with us. And we need to see what's going on here. More than just annoyance is, is this demon. Now, we hear fortune-telling divination, any Gen Xers in the room, at least for me, I immediately thought one 900 Miss Cleo, okay? The, uh, those folks that can, like, tell the future and all that jazz, okay? Uh, the psychic network, deceitful hucksters making money off a of gullible and, and desperate. You young people have no idea even what a 900 number is. That's okay. <laughs> that's, that's great. Ignore Miss Cleo. That's not what's happening here, because what's happening here is is really a cosmic confrontation between good and evil, between the Most High God and one of many endless counterfeits. We we know this because the the word divination in verse 16 literally means python. And according to Greek mythology, Apollo, okay, we're in Philippi, Greece, okay, Roman, Roman colony here, Apollo, one of the most popular Greek gods, killed a gigantic serpent by the name of Python. And Python's main power was that of speaking oracles or divination and fortune-telling. So Luke means for us to associate this girl's demonic fortune-telling with the Greek god Apollo. So think about people even witnessing the situation, Right? Most of they'd never heard of Jesus. So as this girl's following them around and shouting about the most high God, how many pagans, how many Greeks, how many Gentiles are going, oh, well, she's, you know, these guys must be talking about Zeus because that's, that's the most high God, right? She's made her owners a, a lot of money. So this means that she and her power are well known. So when Paul confronts this demon, he's actually protecting the reputation of the gospel. When he casts out that demon, he clears up any misconceptions about who the Most High God is. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This supernatural confrontation, it it points to the power, the authority, and the victory Jesus Christ has over any and all counterfeits. Since the garden, since the fall, Jesus Christ has been stomping on the head of serpents. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue, be they Greek, pagan, or demonic, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the fallout from this confrontation, from this clear victory of of Jesus over the demonic, it's, it's twofold. One, we have a slave girl who's now free from demonic possession, and the text is not clear on this, but, but every commentator I read believes that she was converted to Christ based on how Luke placed her story here between Lydia and, and the jailer. I think that's compelling. Not only that, we have the, the tradition of the Talmud where the, the leader of the household, and Jewish households, would, would start the morning prayer thanking God for three things. Thank you that I am not a woman. Thank you that I am not a slave. Thank you that I am not a Gentile. I think God and Luke have a clear sense of humor here in showing us accounts of all three. That's how God builds his church. At the very least, regardless, a slave girl has been set free from demonic possession by the name of Jesus. I feel pretty confident that that Lydia, at the very least, has invited her to a small group. I feel good about it. Okay? So the the message of salvation, it, it moves forward. Through, through a dramatic conversion. We have this, this supernatural confrontation, then a dramatic conversion. What happens next leads to, to one of the most surprising conversions in all the New Testament. But to get to that, Paul and Silas' circumstances, they've got to take a brutal turn first. Okay, The, the girls' owners, they're extremely unhappy with Paul and Silas. And in verse 19, you see, they, they lay hands on Paul and Silas. They drag them into the marketplace in front of the, the rulers. The the slave owners, they're they're clever. Okay, see see what they're playing on here in verse 20 and 21. They they lie about Paul and, and Silas and, and they describe them as as Jews disturbing the city. Well, this early on, Christianity is not recognized as its own individual religion. It just seemed to be a subset. Uh, of of Judaism. So they're they're describing them as Jews disturbing the city, men who are advocating customs unlawful for Romans. So the slave owner's motivation here, it's not some high regard for, for Roman law. They're not doing their civic duty. This is payback about losing their income. Now, Philippi was a proud Roman city, popular destination for retired Roman soldiers to, to put down roots. So see what they're doing here. That They're stirring up the crowd's bigotry and anti-Semitism while playing on their sense of Roman identity. So seeing that a riot's about to happen in verse 22, the magistrates, they don't even attempt to get Paul and Silas' side of the story. But instead, we can, we can pick up in, in verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the beating Paul and Silas received, it was severe. In verse 23, many blows were inflicted upon them. Then beaten and bleeding, they're thrown into the inner prison, verse 24. Okay, now, until going into Blunt County Detention Center for Jail Ministry, whenever I would hear prison, I would, just being honest, I would sort of think of that neat, tidy, even kind of homey little cell that, that Otis would, would sleep one off in, Andy Griffith show. <laughs> that, that, that's what I would picture with jail. Well, you see with the picture, the Philippian jail was, was not that. That is basically a hole in the ground, a dungeon is what's happening here. Deepest, darkest part of of the prison. Add to that their beaten, bruised, swollen, broken backs, skin uh, on their backs. Feet put into stocks, wooden stocks that are much like you would picture from from medieval times, meant to to spread the, the ankles in such a way that it would be extremely uncomfortable. So here we have false accusations, beaten, thrown in prison. We know from our perspective, looking back, that persecution is is, is the way the message of salvation moves forward but, but we have to admit safe and, and comfortable in our seats today we, we, we see persecution as a necessity, but what if you're in Paul in Silas's shoes? How would you react in their situation would you would you feel hopeless? maybe like the people you were trying to share Jesus with actually they, Do they really deserve his mercy after the way they've treated us? Would you begin to doubt God? I mean, he he sent them this vision and they obeyed, but it seems like he's abandoned them based on their current circumstances. So brothers and sisters, how often do we judge what God is doing based on our circumstances? How often do we do that? And when we do, what opportunities do we miss to glorify God And to share Jesus with others. Suffering has a way of making us so self-referenced, to turn inward. We need help. We need need Paul and Silas to help us here. So, So look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So so John Stott describes their response this way. Instead of cursing men, they were blessing God. Their reaction is so encouraging to us on on multiple levels. One, their response comes from an iron-clad confidence in God's providence and His goodness. The only way they could react is they do is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit reminding them of what's true. What we don't have recorded is is Silas and Paul encouraging each other back and forth. This is what's true, brother. We're we're here for the sake of Jesus. He has us. They're encouraging each other with what's true. Second, we see that the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners are listening. Their, Their songs and prayers to God in the midst of unfair suffering had witnesses that matters, because we see later in verse 28 that, that the way they handled themselves, what they were doing in those moments, when the doors were flung open, the earth quakes, the bonds come unfastened, they all could have escaped, but the prisoners choose to stay. It doesn't make any sense, apart from being persuaded by how Paul and Silas suffered. And brothers and sisters, I don't say this to condemn you, but to encourage you. There are witnesses to how we handle suffering. To to how we deal with circumstances that are unfair and not our fault. Friends are impacted by your trust in God as your child suffers some unimaginable, unimaginable illness. Coworkers, watch when, when someone else gets the recognition for the project that you did. Parents, your, your children, watch when, when you choose to, to serve your spouse, even when it's not your turn. Man, Others watching us suffer, how is that not oppressive? And the reason this isn't stifling is, is again, because what's true for Paul and Silas is true for us. We have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. When we experience situations that are unfair or unjust, perhaps you have experienced this. I mean, even going into a situation thinking, there's no way that I can remain calm and trust God, and yet the Spirit provides. The Spirit is the one who who turns our hearts to prayer and worship and then helps our minds consider those around us. It's only through the Spirit that we be- could begin to think and act in ways where we choose to steward our suffering rather than just be victims of it. Where we see suffering is, is not only something happening to us, but an opportunity to glorify God and witness to others. That's exactly what we see from Paul and Silas here. Get verses 26 through 29, and suddenly... There was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So this is obviously a supernatural earthquake. The doors are open. Bonds come undone. Paul and Silas are free to leave, but they stay. As a result, the jailer and his entire household come to Christ. How? How do we we get from earthquakes to, to Jesus? Well, I want you to think about this jailer for a moment. What type of man was he? Okay, what type of man runs a first century Roman prison? He's likely a retired Roman soldier. I'm guessing his resume did not list at the top traits of compassion, emotional intelligence, a servant leader. I don't think that was on his resume. This guy had to have been proud. I mean, in an honor-shame culture, his pride is, is why he was ready to kill himself. When he thought that the prisoners had escaped. No doubt this guy's tough. He's battle-hardened. He's wise to the ways of the world. He's running a prison. He's heard every story that could be told by every prisoner who says, I'm innocent. He's heard it all. He's seen every con there is to see. So not only do earthquakes and, and thrown open prison doors make this a dramatic conversion, who this jailer was, And who he becomes, there's the drama. And again, I'm glad it was Paul and Silas who were in the prison and not me. Earthquakes, doors opened, bonds undone. I'm seeing that as a clear sign from God to get the heck out of Dodge. (laughs) That's why that happened, right? If I'm being extremely candid, I might have looked at what the jailer was about to do to himself as a natural and logical consequence of being a fool. I mean, if you participate in immorality and injustice, you will reap what you sow, so who am I to stop you? Thank God that mercy triumphs over judgment. Paul and Silas are free to leave, but they stay. (laughs) They use their freedom not for themselves, but to show mercy to another. This is the worst moment of the jailer's life. The jailer is ready to end himself in verse 27. You can see his failure, his shame, his fear packed into just a couple verses here. Yet Paul and Silas, they choose to stay where they are and meet his crisis, not with judgment, but with mercy. So then... What is our response when unbelievers in our lives inevitably reach that crisis moment? Is your response self-righteousness? Is it, I told you so, hopefully you'll learn from this? Or is it mercy? Is it compassion? Do do we see their crisis as a God-given opportunity to show them Jesus? Paul and Silas show mercy towards a jailer who did not deserve it. Why? Because undeserved mercy is their story. Think back to Acts 9. Paul, murderous threats to the church, a terrorist to the church. What is he shown? Mercy. Their story is our story. Paul was shown mercy even as the chief of sinners so that Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience towards those who would come to believe in him. 1 Timothy 1.16. Brothers and sisters, this a little picture of the gospel and how it impacts us. Because Jesus took the righteous judgment that we deserve and instead showed us mercy, we are free to show mercy to others so they might come to know him. Mercy moves the message of salvation forward. Over any obstacles, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ moves forward through mercy. So look at what happens in verse 30, 32. How how does this lead to Jesus? Then he brought them out, the jailer, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. What has the jailer seen? He's witnessed Paul and Silas' response to suffering. He's witnessed their radical integrity staying when they could have fled. He's experienced their mercy in his crisis. So he brings them out of the prison and he asks the most important question a human can ask, what must I do to be saved? That's the right question. And Paul responds with the only right answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. But you might say, all right, hold on a second. That's great. That's great, but listen, not one time in moments of crisis have I had an unbeliever ever ask me how to be saved. I mean, I appreciate that that's what happened for Paul and Silas and the jailer, but I have, not one time has somebody asked me in the moment of crisis how to be saved. When they reach a crisis, when their life implodes, when the child rebels, when the spouse leaves, what they ask is, how can I be happy? How can I be happy? Brothers and sisters, I have good news for you today. Whether you are being asked how to be saved or how to be happy, the answer is the same, Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. When when they say happy, we know what they need. They need joy. We know where joy can be found. So we look for common ground in their question and give them the answer they actually need. We work from where they are because our goal is for the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to move forward. In our passage even, I'm not entirely convinced that the jailer is asking a question that's specifically about eternal salvation. It's it's just as likely that he's asking how to be saved from this current situation. Regardless, Paul gives the jailer the answer he most needs. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. How do we do this? How do we balance Addressing real, felt needs with eternal needs. We must avoid the soft prosperity gospel that implies that when you come to Jesus, your life automatically gets better. That's not the answer. That's a false gospel leading to false converts who end up rejecting, rejecting a false God when life gets hard. So what do we do when most unbelievers around us are not asking how to be saved but how to be happy. So, so not to be trite here, but come to the evangelism training. Okay, that, that is one of my answers for you. A specific area of emphasis for that training will be on positive apologetics. Meaning learning how to tell the story of Jesus in such a way that a skeptic would want it to be true. They would want to see a way where Jesus' restoration, reconciliation is actually true. We need to be equipped in how to articulate that. Many people, many people know what Christians are against, or at least they they think they know. But do they know our religion not only has true answers, but the best answers for suffering, for injustice, the best reasons for human dignity, beauty, the answers to the longings that every person has, are fully answered in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we should downplay sin and the need for repentance by no means. That is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about what we should lead with when someone is in crisis. We should listen well to the unbelievers in our lives, and when they reach that point, we show them mercy, not judgment and we seek to connect them in that moment to the joy that can only be found in Christ. Paul and Silas they they lead with meeting that immediate crisis. They meet it and then in verse 32 they share the rest of the story. Remember verse 32 and they spoke the word of the Lord to him to all who were in his house. So Paul and Silas they're they're speaking the word of the Lord on that night a Roman jailer heard about a Roman cross. His family learned not only about the mercy of God, but the holiness of God. They learned of their rebellion against him. They heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to set the jailer and his family free from their sin by taking the punishment that they deserved. They heard the good news of forgiveness offered by Jesus. And We know there was repentance and belief because we see immediate fruit In the next two verses, look at 33 and 34. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, and he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Immediate fruit, immediate obedience. Baptism, compassion in washing Paul and Silas' wounds. I just... A picture this, this big hulking guy, kind of, uh, if you can picture with me, kind of Professor Hulk, sort of that big, all right, from from Like this big hulking guy, sort of bumping into stuff as he's trying to gather water and bandages. He's clearing off beer steins from, from, from the table there. He's, he's, he's clearing out this, this place where he can, can sit Paul and Silas down. This huge brute getting water, bandages, whatever the first century version of Neosporin. And he's, he's kneeling in front of these two Prisoners tenderly washing them. The toughest guy around washing these, these dirty wounded prisoners. Chrysostom points out this, this beautiful irony of the jailer washing their wounds while while he received the greater washing away of his sins. Verse thirty-four, we see the fruit of hospitality. The jailer takes these former prisoners, seats them at his table, and feeds them. We see that because he and his entire household believe in God, their home has been transformed into a place of joy. They're rejoicing together. So what a picture of unlikely unity and fellowship here. This is the power of the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to overcome any obstacle as it moves forward. Finally, we see that salvation moves forward through timely courage. Paul and Silas, Tom and Philippi it takes one more surprising twist. So perhaps the magistrates thought a beating in a night in prison was enough to teach these foreign troublemakers a lesson. So the next day they send word that Paul and Silas can go on their way, but Paul says no. Pick up in, in verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. He says no. And for the second time in this account, Paul and Silas are free to go, but they stay. Why? Wouldn't this have been so much easier to just quietly move along? Okay, the work is done. The, the jailer and his whole family are, are now believers. Even looking at it, it's, it's a jailer that gives them the message, hey, go in peace, go ahead. I mean, so there's, there's all the, the, the potential tension of this new relationship, a new convert, new family, and they're saying, hey, can, can you guys just sort of move along? So Paul and Silas have even got to overcome that particular aspect of it. It just would have been easier to leave. Maybe what's what's most curious here is the reason that Paul gives for refusing to leave. He asserts his rights as a Roman citizen, and according to Roman law, Paul and Silas' rights have been grossly violated. Not only does he refuse to, to leave, he says, Let the rulers come themselves and take us out. That, my friends, is fairly confrontational. F.F. Bruce calls this the first, first century sit-in. They're not leaving. So for a religion that consistently calls its people to die to themselves, to humble themselves, to lay down their rights, why does Paul claim his Roman rights here? Why does he do it in such a public way? There's two reasons that can instruct us here. One, rulers, magistrates, government leaders are appointed by God to approve of good conduct and be a terror to bad conduct, Romans 13, 1-7. Therefore, rulers should act with an integrity, and when they don't, they should be held accountable. The accusation that Paul lays against the magistrates is serious. Part of their role was to protect Roman citizens against injustice. So when those responsible to act justly towards Paul and Silas not only failed at that, but actively participated in injustice against them, Paul is right to call them to account especially when they try to handle the consequences of it in secret. So as citizens of, of two kingdoms, we are not to remain silent when those who are in authority not only fail to do good, but actively do what is evil against those they're supposed to protect. That's a principle that we can see clearly here. Kids, this, this is for you. Children, you, you guys, if you are in a situation where you see a coach, you see a teacher See a friend's parent, you see an authority figure treating one of your friends or another child unjustly. What should you do? You should tell someone that you trust. That is this principle in action, standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. We've seen this through, through history, even here as, as members of this country, citizens of this country, as Christians came alongside the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as Christians still today fight to see Roe v. Wade overturned. Our call is to hold leadership accountable when they are doing violence to those they should protect. Regardless that the message of salvation through Jesus Christ will move forward, overcoming all obstacles, and the gospel needs no help from kings, congress, or courts, And as believers, we should proceed with wisdom and timely courage. In God's sovereignty and providence, we are citizens of this country at this time, in this place. While we can, we should leverage the rights God has given every human and hold our leaders accountable, not only for acknowledging those rights, but protecting them. We will need wisdom from the Lord in the coming months and years. We need His Spirit to help us know when it's time to silently suffer the beating and when it's time to publicly assert our rights. Because this passage clearly shows us both. So thankfully, the Lord gives us a second reason in this passage that Paul asserts his his Roman citizenship. He's protecting Christians. He's looking out for this brand new Tiny little Philippian church through his actions here. Look at how the magistrates respond in 38 and 39. The police, that happens to be the same people that, that beat uh, Paul and Silas, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Think back to all that's happened. Paul rebukes a demon to protect the reputation of the gospel. Paul and Silas are falsely accused. Their character attacked. Their message of salvation in Jesus tarnished. Now, by refusing to leave quietly and calling the magistrates out, Paul is ensuring that the gospel message is publicly vindicated. It was publicly smeared. Now it's publicly vindicated. Paul and Silas are men of integrity, and so is their message. So when the magistrates learn that Paul is a Roman citizen and hear that he's refusing to leave, they react in fear. That is a right reaction for a leader to have when they've participated in injustice. They took the appropriate and right action of coming to Paul and Silas and personally apologizing. This experience and interaction will, will leave a lasting impression on the magistrates, It will impact how they treat believers in the church in Philippi going forward. They will tread more carefully based on Paul calling them out. In fact, when when they revisit Philippi, we don't hear a peep from the magistrates later on. This, This worked. This has huge implications for us. Paul and Silas were not resisting for their own sake. Not primarily for their own honor but for the sake of the church, not just to exist, but to practice their beliefs. So this is helpful for us in deciding when and why to speak up or take action. If our words and actions could protect the church and encourage Christians to act on what they believe, then we should act, we should speak. We rely on the Holy Spirit to supply us with the courage to speak and act at just the right time. We need to see that once the magistrates do the right thing, once they do the right thing, Paul and Silas obey them. They're not being contrarians for the sake of being opposing them, okay? They obey, but they don't slink away, right? They do it as Roman citizens. They, they do it as Christians, united in Christ to, to Lydia, to, to the jailer, to that church going to them, verse 40, and encouraging them before they depart. So in verse 40, this is this final picture that we're given of this church, of Lydia and the brothers. Shows us one more time that the message of salvation through Jesus Christ will overcome all obstacles and will move forward. Small, inconsequential beginnings, a river cutting through a rock to make a canyon, God is taking something small and inevitably makes it beautiful. It glorifies Him. His church glorifies him, no matter how small, no matter how inconsequential, no matter how weirdly awesome these folks put together, this band of misfits, wealthy religious ladies, formerly possessed slave girls, rough, tough jailers, and their family gathered together, united in Christ in Philippi. It's a perfect start for this church. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for history. We thank you for showing us the beginning of, of this church in Philippi. We thank you for the spirit that you give us that is who indwelt Paul and Silas as they suffered well and showed mercy in the midst of, of crisis. Because Father, we recognize and admit that the only reason that any of us are believers is that you showed us mercy by pouring out your judgment upon your son that we deserve. Father, we thank you for the glory of the gospel that, that does not make sense to a human mind that that expects for there to be payback for our sin. We we expect to owe a a debt because of what we've done, yet you've paid it through your son. Father, we, we thank you so much for your church and what you're doing in your church, what we can't even see that you're doing with your people, uniting us together in Christ to make disciples, to glorify you, to worship you.